From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Schedule F category of federal employees former President Donald Trump proposed is officially dead. President Joe Biden signed an executive order repealing Schedule F Friday afternoon. GovExec reports President Biden signed orders repealing Trump orders on collective bargaining and official time, too. Two members of Congress who've proposed federal employee pay raises before have new pay raise bills. Congressman Jerry Connolly and Senator Brian Schatz will propose 2.2% raises for 2022 with another 1% for locality pay. Federal News Network reports it's the seventh year in a row Connolly's proposed a raise of at least 3%. The State Department has a chief information officer in place. Keith Jones served six years as deputy CIO at Citizenship and Immigration Services from 2012 to 2018. FedScoop reports six other agencies have openings for CIOs that the Biden administration will fill. Those executive orders about the workforce President Biden signed Friday are likely to generate a sigh of relief from federal employees, but the elimination of the Trump EOs may not mitigate all the damage. Jessica Clement is staff vice president of policy and programs for the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. Jesse, welcome back. You warned me when Schedule F first came into being, when President Trump signed the EO, that President Biden repealing it wasn't the end of it necessarily. Do you still think that's the case? I do not, Francis. And as much as I loathe coming on your show and saying I was wrong, um, it's one of those times where I don't ad mind admitting I was wrong. Um, any implementation of Schedule F even with rescission of the executive order, would have caused pure chaos in federal agencies. What actually happened was, as best as I can tell and those I talked to, Schedule F was never implemented anywhere. And Thus, the chaos did not ensue that I was anticipating. Well, I, you're, you're a bigger woman than I am for coming on the show and admitting you were wrong. I, kudos for that. And, and that was one of the things that uh, a human capital uh, official in the government, a career, told me beforehand. Maybe we'll just never get around to it was kind of the, the implication. And that sounds like that's what happened, isn't it? There's no place that the new administration has to go and fix damage that was done, is there? As best I can tell, there is not. You know, I always want to leave that caveat open. You know, there could have been things that happened that I was unaware of. Um, as far as we know, one agency, maybe a second one, had their Schedule F lists certified uh, by OPM, but no action was taken to convert employees or create the Schedule F category. So, you know, best case scenario was that Myself and a lot of the other federal employee groups spent many months towards the end of last year spinning our wheels trying to prevent this from happening. Um, and at the end of the day, they ran out of time. Um, and it appears that whatever work you did worked inside the agencies, if only maybe two out of 20-some cabinet-level agencies ever wound up even creating the list of employees. All right, if Schedule F is dead, is official time officially alive as a result of the executive order that President Biden signed about it on Friday? Oh, as I'm sure, you know, your watchers know, the president rescinded three other executive orders that the Trump administration implemented in May of 18. 
I believe that took you know direct aim at the federal sector unions, official time, collective bargaining rights, and then also merit systems principles. All three of those executive orders have now been revoked. Um, Tony so, Reardon of the uh, National Treasury Employees Union will be on the program later this week to talk about the implications to the unions for those EOs. What this strikes me that this does though, Jessica, is that this eliminates kind of the extraneous things that were left over from the Trump administration that affect the federal employee workforce. If that's the case, then what does the agenda turn to moving forward? I mentioned the pay raise in the headlines a few moments ago. What else is on the horizon that employees should be thinking about, either to the positive or to the negative? That's a really good question, Francis, and it's one that we're obviously having internally at NARF. I'm sure um, President Reardon may give you a different answer to that question because our differing organizations will have different priorities in how we move forward. Um, for us, uh, we're looking towards the pay raise. Legislation has already been introduced in the House to provide a 3.2% pay raise next year for federal employees. We're also looking at full-scale civil service modernization. I think the environment is ripe for that. The general schedule is over 40 years old. It's time we had a serious conversation about attracting top talent to the federal government. I think that's something that could get attention on the Hill and within the administration. Also looking at, you know, long-standing NARF priorities like equal COLAs, uh, cost of living adjustments for CSRS and FERS retirees. They do not receive the same cost of living adjustment if it's over 2%. Um, and also things like repealing the government pension offset and windfall elimination provision. From your perspective, what does effective civil service modernization look like? Because I agree with you, there seems to be consensus that the system that we have now isn't working as well as it could. And then from there, everything pretty much goes out the window as far as agreement. I don't know, that just seems like an entire hour-long show where we could get well, all these people on to discuss it. Be careful uh, what I mean, you ask for. <laughs> hiring priority, you know, how we hire people into the federal government, direct hire authorities, um, taking a look not, not at merit systems, but how, you know, we fit the right people to the right jobs, veterans' preference, elevating human capital in the federal government is one of our priorities. NARF as an organization feels very strongly that the OPM director should be a human capital expert and that that position should be elevated to cabinet level. It has That has been done in the past. Um, if we are going to have a 21st century workforce, we need to prioritize human capital. And right now it just isn't in the federal government across the board. When you say the OPM director should be a human capital expert, what does that look like? Does that look like somebody who's been, for example, a Chico at an agency, or does that mean somebody who has experience in the private sector as a human capital expert, uh, executive of some sort, a combination of both? It doesn't matter as long as there's executive level experience of some sort. What, like, what does that look like in your view? Um, I wouldn't pigeonhole, you know, myself or NARF as an organization to say, like, it, this person has to have X, Y, and Z. Um, I would be happy with any of the things you just listed. Someone who knows how to lead um, an executive at, an, at the executive level, human capital, to elevate its importance, to not be shoved aside um, by other priorities of an administration and say, hey, if you want to do President Biden X, Y, and Z, you need a workforce who can carry that out. Let me help you get that workforce. Let me 
make government cool again or attract the type of talent we need. We've seen this in pockets at federal agencies, but never full scale um, priorities of an administration. Jessica Clement, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis. Up next, using the Defense Production Act to distribute vaccines fast. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the guardrails in place for using the DPA. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. President Biden's executive order to let agencies use the Defense Production Act should help get more vaccines and supplies to the front lines. The ramifications for the companies the order impacts aren't clear, though. Bill Greenwald's visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, former deputy undersecretary of defense for industrial policy. And I want to be clear, these materials are not going to the front lines of any action. They're going to the front lines of the fight against the pandemic. Bill, what does this mean, though, exactly? What do agencies have, uh, have to do regarding the DP? Are they allowed to use it? Does the order require them to actually invoke it? What, what does this mean? I, I think there's a, a uh, substantive piece here and a symbolic piece. And the substantive piece is, is the administration has given these agencies the authority to use DPA, and there are a number of different authorities we can talk about. And then the symbolic piece is a sense that this is a, there's a sense of urgency to fight the pandemic, and all tools are, are available and, and to be used. Uh, so the, the problem with DPA is that it's not a panacea, and that's going to be something that uh, they're going to have to deal with. So there's been a lot of discussion over the last almost year that we've been dealing with this pandemic. The president, whether it's Trump or Biden, should invoke the DPA. What does that mean, though, yeah. to the people who need the materials for which someone invokes the Defense Production Act and actually orders the companies to make whatever? Well, and, and there, there are different things that to invoking the Defense Production Act means. So in one sense, with existing production, you can put the uh, U.S. government's production ahead of all else, other productions. You can potentially compel production by uh, taking uh, excess capacity in, 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 in production and, and move that over to the government. You can incentivize new production, in a sense, by using advanced purchase agreements to buy ahead of need. That's something that was done to help develop the vaccines. And finally, you can create production capacity through Title uh, III money, which essentially is uh, a, 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 an appropriations to start up a new factory. What are the guardrails that exist here? The reason I think of this is President Trump use the uh, DPA to have companies make ventilators. And then we learned six months later, there were ventilators sitting around not used. What helps, uh, what helps the government, what helps the companies to produce the stuff that we actually need? Or is this just a matter of the government says, we need X, companies make X because they're required to? 
Well, the first thing it requires on behalf of the government is visibility into the supply chain. And I'm not really certain whether the government has that type of visibility down to the nth level uh, with the raw materials. So that is what really is the biggest barrier to, to effectively using DPA. The second is that when you invoke DPA, you put the government's production ahead of somebody else's. And that uh, uh, has impact on the, the private sector supply chain, on supply chain with our, our foreign allies and so on. And finally, it only works with the United States production. And many of these uh, 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 things that we want to increase production are, are actually dependent upon foreign supply chains. What is Congress's role or voice in the DPA except to advocate invoking it or not invoking it and on what to invoke it? Again, it depends on the authorities, but if there is a, uh, a need to appropriate money, the Appropriations Committee is, is, is involved in uh, whether it's Title III or if you make advanced purchases, essentially you are committing the government in, in ahead of time and the appropriators are going to have to follow up with, with funding on that. So I want to go back to a term that you used earlier. I'm not a lawyer, but it struck me that it was an important term. When you were talking about the substantive element of invoking the DPA, you said it gave it gives uh, agencies the authority. It doesn't require them to use DPA unless they deem it necessary, though. Am I, do I have that distinction right, Bill? That is correct. They're going to have to come up with a plan on where the effective use of, of this authority should be. That's going to depend upon the, uh, uh, the supply chain. It's going to depend upon the ability of, of, uh, of vendors to actually uh, uh, deliver on, on this. So there's, there's a lot of negotiation that's, that's going to go, have to happen. And so this, again, is an important substantive uh, declaration, but the devils are going to be in the details as this moves forward. So what are the details that people should pay attention to, whether you're uh, working in an agency that's going to invoke the DPA and get something made, or whether you're a company that's going to be impacted by this in the way that you, you run your business for the foreseeable future? There's going to need to be an awful lot of communication between business, the private sector, and the government as to where what the supply chain actually looks like today. Where are they dependent upon uh, foreign uh, uh, components? Where are they? Do they have uh, uh, problems in the supply chain, which which uh, put risk uh, in, and 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 then that back and forth is going to make the determination of whether the the uh, agencies need to invoke the supply chain. So, for example, if the vaccine manufacturers need uh, uh, raw materials, a DPA rated orders type of uh, of, a, of, a, of an action would be extremely helpful to them. We have about thirty seconds left, Bill. What will you watch as this unfolds, uh, whether it's an agency invoking it or a company delivering on it, to see how it works? I think what I'm going to be looking for is where we hear uh, individuals, companies, foreign governments, hospitals uh, start complaining about their production was moved and they no longer uh, have access to it. Because essentially there are going to be winners and losers when this is invoked. The, the U.S. government gets gets uh, to be fr the first in line, and uh, there are others who thought they had that production and won't. Bill Greenwald, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, managing risk at the State Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, changing a risk-averse culture to change American diplomacy. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Former ambassadors tell Congress the State Department could do a better job at evaluating risk. The American Academy of Diplomacy suggests three ways the State Department can become less risk-averse. Greg Starr is former Assistant Secretary of State for Diplomatic Security. Uh, welcome, Greg. I appreciate your time today. You said recently this, when mitigating risk becomes the top priority, then diplomats can no longer carry forward the nation's interests. Why is that the case? Uh, thank you, Francis. That quote is, is, in our minds, very accurate because it reflects the fact that if security is our highest priority, if our secretaries of state are saying that that's the highest priority, if Congress is saying that's the highest priority, we can't get in the field and do the things that we need to do. Foreign service officers can't meet with the people that they need to meet with. Uh, diplomacy is an incremental process, and it isn't simply meeting with uh, other government uh, ministers in highly secured compounds in our highest threat level posts. We've got to get out and interact with members of the opposition, members of civil society and others. And at our high threat posts, this is very difficult and often um, our officers just can't do this type of meeting. All right, there are three areas uh, of recommendations that you and your colleagues make in this work titled Changing the Risk Paradigm for U.S. Diplomats. The first one involves the Accountability Review Board. What is that and what would you like to see change about it? Um, this is legislation that was first passed as part of the Omnibus Diplomatic Security Act in 1985, so it's been around for a very long time. And in 1985, it probably was uh, legislation that was necessary. What it calls for is that in any type of security attack on a U.S. diplomatic installation or people overseas, um, there must be uh, an investigation. It's an accountability review board that is appointed. It's kind of a blue-level blue ribbon level panel that is appointed from outside the department. They look at it, they make recommendations, but simply by the name, Accountability Review Board, it has become sort of like the sort of Damocles hanging over foreign service officers' heads who believe that if they make a decision to let somebody go out to a meeting and somebody gets hurt or somebody gets killed, that they're going to be held accountable, even though we seem to try to make sure that we're running the right levels of risk. But the legislation really is too old. It's counterproductive at this point and needs to be changed and replaced to something that all the other U.S. government agencies that are abroad have, an internal investigative process that weighs the risk, weighs the decision, that looks at things closely. We don't want to avoid accountability. But we do want to avoid the idea that's rampant around many people in the Foreign Service that you're going to be hung if something goes wrong. The second point that you're talking about fits, I think, with a comment you made a moment ago about Foreign Service officers needing to be out there, needing to be present. And that's a, a sentiment that I hear a lot from military people as well. Your second recommendation, Department of State must identify best practices and new techniques for operating in high threat locations. Are there lessons to learn from the Defense Department there? Yes, um, some from the Defense Department, some from the intelligence community, some from other law enforcement organizations that don't seem to have the same restrictions on getting out that our foreign service officers do. Um, as part of this study that we did, we consulted with many of the generals that we work closely with, American generals, in these theaters of high threat operations. 
And many of them were complaining about the fact that foreign service officers couldn't even get out, even when accompanied by U.S. troops. It was too difficult a decision. We need foreign service officers, and that includes U.S. diplomats and USAID officers, foreign agricultural officers, others, to get out and interact. In places where the military is operating, that means going out with them and assuming some of the risks. We don't really want to go out and expose our people to combat missions, but the civil operations that the military does frequently should have foreign service officers with them. Uh, we have about 90 seconds left, Greg. And the third recommendation is this. The foreign affairs agencies will have to take steps to change a culture of risk aversion that has developed over the years. Understanding culture is supposed to be one of the specialties of the foreign service. Why has it been so difficult to change the internal culture there? Um, first, it has to start with Congress. We really believe it has to start with changing this law. Second, it has to start with department leadership. And quite frankly, uh, we've had senior leadership to include secretaries of state that have said security of our personnel is our highest priority. It's got to be a high priority, but the highest priority has to be carrying out the foreign affairs policies of the United States government and our national security operations. It can't be just the security of our people. Greg, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on. Congratulations on this work. Thank you very much, Francis. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. Up next, a special look at the Department of Energy, sponsored by SAIC and Hitachi Vantara Federal on the Government Matters Thought Leadership Network. If you're watching on the American Forces Network, you can watch Agency in Motion Energy on demand at govmatters.tv. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.